0: Well, good morning. I'm very glad to be here this morning preaching to you. And I'd like to begin my sermon with two questions. And uh, these questions are really the motivation for this sermon. It's what got me thinking about these things. And as you'll see, you'll no doubt agree with me that they're very important questions. The first is, do you love God? And the second is, does God love you? Now, surely, you will admit that the first question at least is central to being a Christian, right? After all, Jesus said that the greatest commandment is that you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. So there's no question that Christian, that Christians are to love God. That's part of what it means to be a Christian. But how do you know that you love God? It's very connected to the second question, um, that of knowing that God loves you. How do you know that God loves you? Certainly we hear that a lot, uh, but I know from speaking to many of you that you struggle to believe that that's actually true. It, is it actually even important to know for you to know that God loves you is that even something that's critical as you're in your walk as a as a Christian so is that important and how do you know that God loves you now brothers and sisters answering these two questions must be the chief business of our lives there's lots of things we do in our lives we go to work we get educated we get married we have kids we have friends we do lots of things in our lives, but these questions must be central. You must answer these questions in this short time that you have here on earth. Nothing less than the fate of my soul and your soul is in the balance as we answer these questions. For at the end of this life, which is very short, we will stand before the judgment seat of God. And a Christian is one who know, who loves God and knows that the love of God, okay? A Christian is one who loves God and knows the love of God. So first, let's begin by answering the question of order. The great... Now, in in answering this, I'm going to be skipping over some really big doctrines that we could spend lots of time on, but the great doctrines of predestination and election come under this heading, and we only have time to... to, to make a passing reference to them. The question is, do you love God first and then he, seeing your love to him, returns turns to you and responds in kind? Is that how it works? Does God see your love for him and say, oh, wow, I want to I love, love this guy because he loves me? Or does it kind of happen at the same time? Is it like, you know, somehow God orchestrates it that he starts to love you at the same time that you begin to love him? Is that how it works? Well no, scripture teaches that we were, that before God knew us, or before we knew God, that we were enemies and haters of God. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, and there was nothing that we could do to make ourselves alive. That's why scripture teaches very explicitly in 1 John 4, that we love because He first loved us. For us to come alive spiritually, God has to shed His love on us. And in our case, of course, this happened in one sense because Jesus died on the cross many years ago, right? We have, we can have peace with God because the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus. That's a fact of history. It happened many years ago. But there's another sense in which we love Uh, because god first loves us and it's and it's in this sense that jesus speaks to nicodemus about in john 3 jesus taught that taught nicodemus that no one can see the kingdom of god unless he is born again he says the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it but do not know where it comes from and where it is going so is everyone who is born of the spirit We love because God first loves us. We come alive spiritually because the Holy Spirit of God first moves in our hearts and minds to draw us to himself. Now, if we've established this order, it becomes very clear that it's difficult to pull these two things apart. There's a difference, of course, between loving God and being loved by God. But is it possible to have one without the other? Can can a man be loved by God, for instance, and not respond with love to God? And here again, I'm going to have to brush over a very large doctrine, but I will simply tell you that it is not possible. And we could spend many weeks on this, but what we're talking about here is the, uh, the doctrine of the effective grace of God. When God sets his fatherly affection on someone in particular, that love and grace is effective and does do the work of drawing the sinner to himself, to God. This is part of God's sovereign will. Now, the doctrine of God's effective grace is not in conflict with the free offer of the gospel. We trust that we love God, that we love because God first loved us, because that is what Scripture tells us, okay? That's explicit in Scripture. Scripture also commands all men to repent and have faith in Jesus, the Son of God. These things are clear and obvious. There's many place passages in the Scriptures that teach it. Now, the secret will of God, by which he saves some and not others, is not clear and open to us, right? And you... Are not to use, I am not to use God's secret will to tell me, so you're not to use God's secret will to tell me that the offer of peace with God through Jesus Christ is somehow not available to you. I'm here to tell you today that it is. It's in the pages of Scripture, it's written to you, you can read it. It is an offer to you. So God's secret will is not in conflict with the free offer of the gospel to all men. It's also not in conflict with the warnings in scripture to be careful that you not come short of the grace of God. If you look at Hebrews 12, beginning with verse 15, it says, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble and by it many be defiled that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought, it, sought for it with tears. Now, this passage does not mean that in regards to the secret will of God, that God's love can be ineffective. It's It's not as if God's grace somehow fails some people, okay? Instead, it means that the free offer of the gospel that we find in Scripture is real, and it's warning us against turning away from it. It's warning you and me against turning away from the magnificent, large, open invitation of the gospel, now, the warning specifically mentions bitterness and the immoral and godless man Esau. And I want to highlight these things because often when you're, when you're dealing with someone who, who struggles to, to know and believe that God loves them, you're struggling with someone, or you're talking with someone who's very bitter and angry. And... Um, and so it's fitting, and it's kind of God, that he has given us this passage in Hebrews that specifically mentions these two things, the bitterness and the immoral and godless man, Esau, in this passage, as it exhorts us to not to, to be careful that we not come short of the grace of God. So, bitterness and immorality, they, they, they're part of the same package, they go together, but let's start with bitterness, and... I'll take a step back from there also and say that anger and bitterness go together, very much so. Um, and so let's, let's start and say, okay, what is anger? Well, uh, there's a small group here, I believe, that's been reading the book Uprooting Anger. Are you, uh, is that Jeff Ewer's group? Oh, it's Poor Curtis's group. All right. Uh, Jeff's in it, that's all right, okay. Well, it's a, it's a very good book, and I, I do recommend it. Um, But it gives a definition of anger that I'm going to paraphrase here that it actually stole from Richard Baxter. And and my paraphrase is that anger is the rising up in the heart of passionate opposition against a perceived evil which gets in the way of or hinders us in some desired good. Okay, so it's a bit obtuse way of saying it, but the gist is we think that something is good and we want it. We desire it. And somehow... Something gets in the way of what we want. And so our response is full. Baxter says, rising up in the heart of passionate opposition. Okay, Our response is passionate. We're opposed to somebody getting in our way. So how does bitterness... Relate to anger. Well, bitterness is just anger that's sort of settled in for the long haul, right? It's, it's anger that hasn't really left, but is still in your heart and that can actually be, uh, inflamed to anger very quickly. All it takes is a little spark and that bitterness will immediately turn into real hot anger, not, not just the cool bitterness. Now, bitterness accuses God of wrongdoing. This is a very, very important key concept to understand. Bitterness says that God is evil. If your heart is filled with bitterness, it means that you believe that God is evil. And it's very hard sometimes to actually even see the bitterness that's in your own life. I remember... Uh, My first two years of college, I went to school out east for the first two years. And I had a very difficult time at college. It was very difficult. And I remember after those two years um, being angry at my parents. Now, my parents are not guilty of my sin. It was my sin that led me to to the bitterness. My parents are actually very conscientious and concerned about me. They've done anything, absolutely everything a good parent could possibly do uh, or think to do to help me. And yet somehow I was angry at them for the way things turned out those first two years. And I, I didn't even realize it. But for years after that, I, I was angry at them. And, and so I, I, I mentioned that to say that bitterness is something you know, in this passage in Hebrews, it says that it's a root, right? It's a root of bitterness. Bitterness is something that that sort of gets down beneath the surface and sinks down into your heart, and it's very difficult to see. And so we actually, just like pulling weeds is difficult because you, you have to get to the root of it, it's very difficult to to, to see an, or bitterness and and deal with it effectively because you have to work at finding it and seeing it. I had to actually, well... I, I, I believe that it was my actually the kindness of God through my mother um, that helped me to see my bitterness uh, but it took her she was on the phone with me but it was it amounted to basically her punching me in the face to, to see for me to see that I was simply bitter and if you know my mom you could, you'd understand that that's something she could have done um, so but Another thing about bitterness, though, is that it's often beneath other sins. And specifically, I think of the sins of escape, right? It's beneath the sins that we give ourselves to because we're unhappy with the circumstances that God has given us. And these sins are pornography. The sins are addictions, drug and alcohol addictions. Um, These types of sins are often motivated often fueled by bitterness and anger at the at the things at the place that god has put us right now and so that's why um, uh, that's why again this hebrews passage is so very helpful because it links coming short of the grace of god and this bitterness to the immoral and godless person esau what did esau do rather then trusting God with his hunger, he sold his birthright for a, a, cup, a, a bowl of soup, right? He sold his birthright for some food. That's the story of Esau. Uh, he sold his birthright for a single meal. In the same way, we're willing to, to trade in the very real and precious and, and, and weighty promises of God for the cheap imitations that, that are not lasting, uh, we trade it in. We, we trade in the kindness and mercy of God for our addictions, for our pornography, for our lust, for our alcohol, for our novels, whatever it is. And we escape rather than, than trusting God. So the question is how can I be free from, the, from this bitterness and begin to know the love of God? Because it's really the same question. How how can you begin to know the love of God? How can you become convinced that God loves you? It's it's connected to this question of how to be free from bitterness and anger at God uh, for our circumstances. The first thing is to recognize this and confess it as sin. This is where we must begin. This is understanding the truth of the doctrine of depravity. Just imagine for a minute that actually God is the one who is righteous and holy and you are the sinner. Just imagine it, all right? (laughs) It's true. Recognize that you are the one who is accusing God of, of sin and yet you are the one who is sinful. And stop accusing God of wrongdoing, okay? This is... Confess this bitterness, this anger as sin, because that's what it is. Next, we need to humble ourselves and believe the word of God. And this really is, um, this really does take humility. Because like I said before, the truths and the promises of scripture are there for everybody to read. They're there for you to read. God's offer of the free grace of the uh, the free grace of God through Jesus Christ is available to you. It's right there in Scripture. Um, For instance, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Is is Jesus a liar? Is he lying to you? Or is that true? Is it true that Jesus will give you rest? It also says, he also says, uh, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Is this true? Is Jesus lying to you? Or, or is it true? It's true. Also, in Isaiah, come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. Is God lying to you when he's inviting you to, to come to him and confess your sins? That he'll wash you and make you, make you pure? He's not lying to you. And it is the proud man, the stiff-necked man, who is unwilling to come to God as a sinner. Okay? This, this we have to understand. It's the proud man who is unwilling to come to God as a sinner broken in need of God's care so come to him he is inviting you to come to him come and do it leave your pride behind and come to him and next we can be free of our bitterness and we can begin to know the love of God by obeying God first John 2 teaches us beginning with verse 3 by this We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. And in regards to this, there's, there's two main things I want to say. You obey in order to understand. This is, this is a regular thing in Scripture. In fact, if you have children, you, you'll understand very quickly that it's a regular thing with your children. I don't expect my children to understand or I'm not going to demonstrate to my child why she shouldn't touch the oven or the, the, the hot top of the, the stove. I'm not going to put her finger on the stove, so she can understand. Oh, yeah, you know, I really shouldn't touch that. That would be a that would be a very evil thing to do. Well, in the same way, God commands us to do things, and often we don't understand what those commands are. But we, just like my daughter, we learn, we learn, and begin to understand as we obey. So, you obey in order to understand. And the other thing I'll say about obedience in particular is that it takes, again, humility to obey even as you sin, okay? Because one of the things that a proud man who is bitter and angry at God will say is he'll think about his own sin and he'll think, God can't save me. I'm beyond God. That is not some kind of high spiritual, you know, Tim, Tim referred to that last week, I think, as an airy spirit, you know, trying to be more spiritual than God. In fact, the reality that we do sin is, and that we will need to, on on an ongoing basis, come before God and and ask for forgiveness and repent, is not something that surprises John, who wrote here that those who uh, know him keep his commands. Uh, In fact, in in the two previous verses, he says, "...my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the Righteous." And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Okay, again, it's the proud man who doesn't come to Christ as a sinner. It's the proud man who doesn't return to Christ after sinning yet again. So come to God, obey him, and and turn to him. And finally, um, any... I say this to any young man that comes to me, and any time I'm in a discussion with a young man about his sin, I always bring up Ephesians chapter 3, beginning with verse 14, uh, because it demonstrates that overcoming sin requires the power of God. But in in a particular way that's related to this idea of understanding the love of God, it says... Beginning with verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. That he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts. Did you catch that? We're strengthened with power in the inner man. Why? Why are we strengthened? so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to overcome your sin, or to say the rosary, or to do any number of things. You know, climb up, go, I don't know. Any number of things um, that we put ourselves through so that we're uh, going to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Okay, fighting your sin is knowing the love of God. Those two things go together. The more you know the love of God, the more you will be able to fight your sin. And how is it that you can know the love of God? It's right here. He prays that the power of God will be on us through his spirit, that we might be strengthened in our inner man to know the love of God. The point is that this is that this takes faith, that it's God works in us, to give us faith to know the love of God. This is the work of a Christian, to know the love of God. And indeed, he ends by saying, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. God is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. Okay? all He is able to do more than you're even able to imagine. So trust him. Trust his word. A Christian, I'll end by the way I started. A Christian is one who loves God and is loved by God. And if you know the love of God, you can join the psalmist who says in, in, chapter, in Psalm, uh, chapter 36, beginning with verse 5, it says, Your lovingkindness, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches the skies. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like a great deep. O Lord, you preserve man and beast. How precious is your lovingkindness, O God. And the children of men take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They drink their fill of the abundance of your house. And you give them to drink of the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. O continue your loving kindness to those who know you. And your righteousness to the upright in heart. Is this true? Will you be able to drink of the river of your delights if you go to god go to him and it ends this even this psalm ends with a with a warning it says let not the foot of pride come upon me and not and let not the hand of the wicked drive me away there the doers of iniquity have fallen they have been thrust down and cannot rise This passage of the Psalms contains both wonderful promises and dire warnings. The humble man is captivated by God and awestruck by him. And it is the proud man who will be thrust down. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. These promises, these offers are for you. Grasp a hold of them. Don't come short of the grace of God. By the power of God, confess your bitterness and your anger and trust in him. He is good. Let us pray. Father in heaven, this is work that is completely beyond us. We look at our sin and we despair. And we ask, Father, that you would please forgive us of our despair because you have given us these precious promises. Help us, Father, to have faith in your word and to taste and see that the Lord is good. You are good. We declare it. We're thankful, Father, for your goodness. Be with us now, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.